True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to a Spotlight Minisode, in which we discuss cases that are in the media at the moment and trending topics related to true crime. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Nicole Sfegliati, Natalie Chetia, Bronwyn, Alexandra Diego, and Wicked Crime South Africa for your support on Patreon, as well as Angelique Pitta and Ilka Zenskirali for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. We also have two new ways that you can support the show. You can head over to Audible and purchase the Krugersdorp Cult Killings by Jana Marks, which I narrated, or you can get your health and beauty needs from King Online and get a 10% discount by using the code TCSA10 at checkout. We also have our amazing giveaway running with King Online, where if you purchase for 400 Rand or more and use the TCSA10 code, you get entered into the draw to win your share of 2,350 rands worth of brand new release true crime and crime fiction books. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keeping the show growing and improving. Most often in Spotlight Minisodes, I discuss cases that are in the media at the time, but every now and then I pick a topic that I feel bears discussion. The topic I wanted to discuss today is one that is very close to the heart of many South Africans. I subscribe to an academic journal called South African Crime Quarterly, and when I received notification of one of the articles in the most recent journal, I felt it would be a good topic to chat about on the podcast. The article is called Reversing the Syndrome of Secrecy, Peremptory Reporting Obligations in Cases of Child Abuse and Neglect. It's written by Mildred Bekenk, and it discusses the issue of mandatory reporting of child abuse and neglect in South Africa. I've covered a few cases of child abuse and neglect on the podcast, Perhaps the one that stands out the most is the case of the so-called Springs House of Horrors, which I covered in episode 14. The case was possibly one of the worst cases of child abuse reported in South Africa, which resulted in a conviction, and told the story of a family of five children who were horrifically abused and neglected over the space of more than a decade. The father in this case was convicted and sentenced to jail time, but the question that remained on everyone's lips was, 
how these people got away with this for so long, and why no one ever said anything. The children lived on a property with other tenants. There were many people that visited the house and saw what was happening, but it took the strength of a young boy to eventually escape to a neighbour before being beaten within an inch of his life by his father for something to be done. In this case, although the children had not been enrolled in school for most of their lives, the efforts by the parents to evade the authorities meant that those in child protection simply did not know that these children were in need. When they were alerted, they took immediate action, with 17 police officers and three social workers descending upon the house to rescue the children. From a child protection services perspective, this was an example of the system working well when it was notified. It is, however, that very notification that is at the crux of the matter here. If we immerse ourselves in what we see in the media, it can really feel like our country is the least safe place on earth for children. I know, though, that we are not the only country dealing with these issues. A study published in The Economist Online compiled data from 60 countries pertaining to the abuse and exploitation of children. The study ranked these countries on a scale of 0 to 100, around four different categories. The environment, which includes poverty levels and access to services, the legal framework, which details how well-developed laws to protect children are in the country, government's commitment and capacity, and the final category is the engagement of industry, civil society and the media in the protection of children. The results are not quite what I expected. According to this study, the safest place in the world to be a child is the United Kingdom with a rating of 83.9 out of 100, while the most dangerous place to be a child is the Democratic Republic of Congo, with a rating of just 26.4 out of 100. South Africa ranks pretty much in the middle, at 58.1. Interestingly, our legal framework in the protection of children is one of the best in the world, at 77 out of 100. However, we rank below the halfway mark in terms of government commitment and capacity. So in simple terms, we have the laws to protect children, we just aren't implementing them properly, or we don't have the capacity to do so. I really find studies like this very helpful, because I think that with the issues that we have around violent crime in this country, we can often find ourselves over-exaggerating or underestimating exactly how bad our issues are when compared with other countries. So it helps to clarify the reality when we zoom out. That is only one part of it, though, because as important as the big picture is, we don't live in these other countries. We live in South Africa, and the big picture means very little when we hear reports of children being sexually, physically, and emotionally abused and neglected. Statistics and data 
mean nothing to Chamonique Clarsen, the children from the Springs House of Horrors, and the thousands of other child victims in our country. While I would like to say that we should be working toward a future where child abuse and neglect is no longer an issue, that is unfortunately a pipe dream. There will always be human beings who, whether willfully or due to their own circumstances, either blatantly abuse or fail to adequately care for children. The most important thing is for us to figure out a way to find these children and get them the help they need. In episodes in which I discuss child abuse, I always encourage people to say something if they see something, and not to bury their heads in the sand if they are aware of abuse or neglect of children in their communities. Unfortunately, though, we cannot rely on the average citizen to report abuse. There are simply too many factors that play into why someone may not report abuse, and this is why we have what are called mandatory reporters. A mandatory reporter is someone who, by law, is mandated by the nature of their work or the position they hold to report suspected child abuse or neglect. If they fail to do so, they can be held criminally liable. The same law also protects such mandatory reporters from any liability themselves. So if they carry out their duty to report, even if they are somehow involved in the abuse, they may not be held liable, depending on the situation. In the past, mandatory reporters were a small pool of people, teachers and doctors for the most part. But when the Children's Act came into effect in 2010, this expanded the pool of mandated reporters to a huge number of occupations. In South Africa, you are mandated to report child abuse or neglect if you are in any of the following occupations. Correctional official, dentist, homeopath, immigration official, labor inspector, legal practitioner, medical practitioner, midwife, minister of religion, nurse, occupational therapist, physiotherapist, psychologist, religious leader, social services professional, social worker, speech therapist, teacher, traditional health practitioner, traditional leader, or member of staff or volunteer worker at a partial care facility, drop-in centre, or child and youth care centre. If any person in any of these roles suspects child abuse or neglect, they are bound by law to report it to the authorities while ordinary members of the public who do not fall into any of these categories are not bound by law to report physical abuse or neglect, I did find it very interesting that the Sexual Offences and Related Matters Act mandates that any citizen of South Africa that has knowledge of any sexual abuse of a child is mandated by law to report it, regardless of the circumstances. Anyone that knows of any sexual abuse of a child and does not report it is committing a criminal offence. We know that it is a sad fact 
that the vast majority of sexual abuse against children goes unreported. This happens for a variety of reasons. Sometimes the child is unable to speak up. Often parents feel it's better to deal with the situation themselves, especially if the perpetrator is close to the family. Occasionally, child sex abuse is covered up by organisations, as we've seen to be the case with some schools that have been shown to have abusive histories, and some religious organisations that feel they are above the law. The law is clear on this. You don't get to make that decision. If you are aware of a child that has been or is currently being sexually abused, regardless of whether you think the child is no longer in danger, as a citizen of South Africa, you have the legal obligation to report the abuse to the police. Interestingly, Despite the law having now outlined mandatory reporters that are obligated to report abuse, a recent study showed that of all the cases handled by child protective service organizations in this country, only 16% were reported by those who had a legal obligation to do so. The vast majority were actually reported by the victims themselves, or by ordinary members of the public. To me, that's both a good sign and a very bad one. It's good, because members of the public are standing up against child abuse. But it's also concerning, because you cannot tell me that in 84% of those cases, those children never came into contact with a single person that was a mandatory reporter. Of course, Child abuse is often well hidden, but if you spend enough time with a child, it must become clear that something is not right. So why are mandatory reporters not coming forward? And are these people even trained to pick up on the signs of child abuse and neglect? For people in professions like psychologists, doctors and teachers, the signs may be more obvious. Bruising, broken bones, a child not thriving physically, inappropriate behavior in younger children, or a child appearing fearful or withdrawn. But how does a dentist know if a child is being abused? How does a labor department inspector spot neglect? Do they even know what it looks like? Do we even know what it looks like? Zooming out again. This lack of mandatory reporting in child abuse cases is not just a South African phenomenon. In other countries where mandatory reporting forms part of their law, like the US, Canada and Australia, studies also show that professionals are not reporting abuse for the most part because they're unfamiliar with the system of reporting and also because they're not trained in the identification of abuse indicators. The Children's Act lists the type of injuries that should be red flags for physical abuse. These include bruises on any part of the body, grasp marks on the arms, chest or face, variations in bruising colour, black eyes, belt marks, tears around or behind the ears, cigarettes or other burns, cut welts, 
fractures, head injuries, and convulsions. This is a great place to start, but they're not a catch-all list for the signs of abuse. And if a child is being systematically abused at home, the abusers will seek out ways to cover it up. They will strike the child where the bruises aren't visible. They will make the child wear long pants and long-sleeved shirts, even in hot weather. Or they'll simply isolate the child from others until the visible injuries have healed. There will be explanations for injuries. And if, as was the case with the Springs family, the parents take the children to different hospitals for all injuries, a history is not going to build up. One bruise on a child or a broken arm does not spell abuse. Children injure themselves all the time, just in the natural course of being children. And this is probably another reason why so few cases of child abuse are reported. People think, what if I'm wrong? What if this child is not being abused, and I report this and create chaos in the child and the parents' lives? and I'm mistaken. I recently listened to a podcast called Do No Harm. It tells the story of two American couples who lived through every parent's nightmare. Their children were injured in accidental falls, and due to a wide range of circumstances, both sets of parents found themselves on the wrong end of child protective services. These families had their children removed from their care. They spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees to fight a system that was not created to protect them. It is a terrifying possibility that your child could accidentally get injured and you could be accused of abuse. Your children could be taken from your home and put in foster care because one of them fell off a chair. The duty of Child Protective Services is to protect children from harm at all costs. But at least in these cases, it was this duty to protect that ended up causing them harm. I don't know how much of this happens in South Africa. I had an experience with our child protective system about a decade ago with the child of an acquaintance. The situation in question involved neglect due to substance abuse, and while it did seem that Child Protective Services had the best interests of the child in mind, as the child was removed while the parents underwent mandatory substance abuse rehabilitation, in my experience, there was no follow-up. Once the mandated treatment was undertaken, the child was put back into the care of their parents. They moved towns, and that was that. With that experience in mind, I would think that there is a far greater problem with unreported abuse than there is with false reports of abuse. But that's just my assumption. I guess the question is not, what if I'm wrong? The question should be, what if I'm right and I do nothing? Will I be able to live with myself if that child dies. On a less dramatic level, if I do nothing, and I am right, what future will this child have with no intervention? 
Am I just contributing to a greater future societal breakdown by burying my head in the sand? There are many countries in the world that do not mandate obligatory reporting. Interestingly, in the UK, which we heard is the safest place for children to live, they do not have mandatory reporting because they have found it to not be useful and, in fact, they found it to be highly problematic. While it's important to have the eyes of people that would ordinarily have contact with children open, is implementing mandatory reporting just taking the responsibility of many and putting it on a few? The article in the South African Crime Quarterly by Mildred Bekink concludes by saying that, above all, the golden thread that runs through successful child safety programs internationally is the education of both mandatory and non-mandatory reporters. The key is, for everyone, no matter what your occupation, to really understand the nature of child abuse and neglect and to be able to identify the signs. This golden thread cannot be woven just by one group of people, though. It will take work from the public and various arms of government and law enforcement. Recently, the Western Cape local government opened an office which is the first of its kind in South Africa. The Office of the Commission for Children in the Western Cape is tasked with monitoring government services, policy and law, as well as the conducting of research to inform such policy and practice relating to children's rights. An office such as this will be able to do the work that overstretched child protective units cannot do, and hopefully start to find ways to educate the public at large about what constitutes child abuse and neglect. I'll include a link in the show notes to a page on the Western Cape government's website that gives some detailed descriptions on the types of red flags you can look for when attempting to identify abuse. It takes a village to raise a child. We've all heard that proverb. But perhaps you don't know that it has African origins. Today, our villages are slightly less community-based, but no less important. It still does take a village to raise a child, but it also takes one to keep them safe. So perhaps the most important thing that we as South African adults can do is make ourselves available to children. If we behave in ways that foster trust, then perhaps we will be able to see the signs and perhaps we will hear not just what the most vulnerable among us are saying, but also what they're not saying. Thank you for listening to today's Spotlight Minisode, Child Abuse in South Africa. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'll be back next Friday with a full case episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. Bye.